It is good to be with you this morning, friends. We will be finishing up the book of Joshua today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, Joshua 24 is where we're going to spend most of our time. Uh, But before we get into the text, as it feels like is becoming my custom, I would like to ask you to pray for me. Um, I am convinced when Jesus says that apart from me you can do nothing, that he is also talking about me. So would you pray for me, friends? Would you pray for yourselves? Um, Let us ask Jesus to come and do something this morning. So Lord, we do ask you. We ask you to come and teach us. This is your word. This year, these are words that you have written for the benefit of your church, and that means us. You promised that you would build your church, and so Jesus, we ask that you would do that now. If there are those here today that have not yet put their trust in you, I pray that you would draw them. And for those of us that already have, Lord, I pray that this would be strengthening food for us. Use me and open our hearts to what you have for us today. It is in your name and for the good of your church that we pray, amen. Joshua 24. Feels like we've been in Joshua for forever and a half. We have not, but it's been a while. And we are finally coming to the end of it. So last week, you'll remember that we talked about Joshua's last words that he wanted to speak to Israel. And this week, God has a message for the people of Israel. So we are going to pick up in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came out to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. You lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession over their land. I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, rose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, and so I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. I sent a hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land in which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. You dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. This is what God has to say to his people before Joshua dies. On first glance, it just kind of seems like a quick summary of where he's brought them thus far. And so you might be wondering, well, why was that really necessary? 
And so I wonder, Christian, how often do you have to be reminded of where, yeah, enough said, right? Um, <laughs> but in particular, there's something weird about this retelling of Israel's history. It seems to focus on the idolatry, albeit in a subtle way. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods. Abraham was called out of an idolatrous situation. Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and then God sent Moses and Aaron and plagued Egypt and brought them out of an idolatrous situation. And then he used Israel constantly to conquer idolaters, to go and conquer those gods which opposed him, which he called them out of. He conquered the gods of Egypt. It's a fun study if you're ever interested to go through the plagues on Egypt and compare it to the gods of Egypt. Every single one of them lines up. In darkening the sun, God conquered Ra. He was showing that he was greater than those gods. He defeated the gods of Egypt, and that's super cool. All along the way, he is conquering the gods that are coming against the people of Israel, and they saw it. And they got to be a part of it. And they benefited greatly from what God was doing through them in conquering the gods of these other nations. So much so that now they're living in cities that they didn't have to build. They are eating fruit from vineyards that they didn't have to plant. They're eating olives and presumably doing other things with olives that they didn't have to do anything to grow those trees. They get the benefits of being in an established nation and they didn't have to work to get that nation established. God was gracious to them. I'm afraid over the last couple of weeks in um, comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, I have not uh, done justice to how gracious God was to the Israelites under the Old Covenant. He was incredibly gracious. He gave them so much. And, and just as a reminder, they had that one battle at Ai where 36 men died, and that was a big deal. Why is 36 men a big deal? When we're considering war with thousands of men, and only 36 died, well, it was a big deal because God was fighting their battles, because we don't have any other recorded losses. That's incredible. God was incredibly gracious to them, winning in totality. Now, I'm not, I'm not willing to say for sure that not one of them fell, but the fact that 36 was a big deal, that's noteworthy. God was gracious to them. He gave them good gifts. And he did so, again, by conquering the people that he had sent them to conquer. He did it for them. These people saw all of it. Which makes 14 and 15 a little disturbing. Joshua continues, he says, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. You realize that means that they have the gods that their fathers served in Egypt and beyond the river? Despite all that God had brought them through. 
You would think after seeing the plagues and after crossing the Red Sea and seeing God himself close the waters on top of Pharaoh and his armies, you'd think that they would just be like, oh, this little statue of Ra that I have isn't really worth that much. I'm just going to throw it in the water. But no. It seems as though they carried it through the wilderness. It seems as though they carried it with them into conquering the land. At least that's the only way I can make sense of it, that Joshua can hear say, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. They still have them. Even when they're being righteous and obeying God's commands and God is conquering people before them, they're still holding on to these idols. Maybe they're just decorations. I've seen some of those idols they make for nice coffee table pieces, you know. Maybe. Maybe. But it, it disturbs me, and I think it should disturb you, that this is a command that after all that God has done for them, this is a command that he still has to give. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Verse 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the regions beyond the river or the god of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lots of us have this verse on a little plaque in our house or maybe on the wall. And I didn't realize that the plaque that my family has cuts out that center third. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then go serve those gods. What a weird thing for God's prophet to say. Why is he doing this? Why is he saying this? Is it so that he can give us an inspiring verse that we can put on our wall or maybe tattoo somewhere that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Or is he trying to be gracious to the people of Israel? Let's keep reading. Verse 16, the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It is the Lord our God who brought us, out, uh, brought us and our fathers out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites in whose land we live. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. We remember. We remember everything that you just said. We get it. Like, we're going to serve God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Is he giving them an out? Is that why he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then go worship those other gods? There's a very real sense in which uh, ascribing to the old covenant and then failing to keep it would have been worse for you than if you had never ascribed to it at all. The cursings that God had promised his people if they went away into idolatry were way worse than what most of the world got to experience being apart from God. 
it seems to me that Joshua is giving them an out because he knows them. Having led them for so long, he knows the caprice of their hearts. He knows that they are going to change their mind and that in a very short time, they and their descendants are going to abandon God. Joshua seems to know better. He says, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God and he is a jealous God. But the people said, verse 21, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, are you sure? You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, yeah, we are witnesses. He said then, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice will obey. Okay, we get it, Joshua, geez. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. He put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, which is a kind of tree, that was at the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words that the Lord has spoken to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And so Joshua sent away every man to his inheritance. He is so emphatic. Do you know what you're signing up for? You guys aren't up to the task. Are you sure that you want to sign up for this? Okay, your witnesses against yourself. Are you sure you want to sign up for this? Okay, you're not, you're not good enough witnesses. You guys don't get it. This rock is a witness against you. Are you sure that you want to sign up for this? All along the way, they said, yes, 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 we do, absolutely, yep, we got it, we're good. So they established the covenant again. They committed to it. Now 29, after all these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. They buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is on the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, um, which the people of Israel brought out of Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in a piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor and the father of Shechem for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given them in the hill country of Ephraim. So they kept good on their promise in that generation. And as long as the elders that outlived Joshua were still around, they kept good on their promise. They even kept good on their promise to bury Joseph, which was a promise from like 400 and some years ago. That's, that's pretty good, they're doing well, doing well. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died all the leaders that had brought them into the land are now dead. And that is how the book of Joshua ends. Now turn over one page with me to the book of Judges. We're going to look at Judges chapter 2. And because of this, I'm pretty sure that Judges is a sequel to Joshua, but I'm not willing to fight about that. So, uh, Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, of Israel, they each went to their own inheritance to take possession of the land. 
And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, starting to sound familiar, who had done and seen all of his great works that the Lord had done in Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him within the boundaries of an inheritance of Tinnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all the generation were gathered to their fathers. They died. That whole generation died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, they were in terrible distress. Now the rest of the book of Judges is God being merciful to a people disobedient. They get oppressed and he raises up a judge because he has pity on them. And as long as that judge is alive, God is with them through that judge's ministry. And then when that judge dies, the people do the same thing over and over again. They abandon God and they go and worship the temples around them. They worship idols around them. As sad as it is, or rather as hopeful as it is the way that Joshua ends saying that they, they continue to obey the Lord, that's not where the story actually ends. Joshua was right. They were not able to serve the Lord. And it makes you wonder how that rock ended up testifying against them. I looked and I can't find another reference to that rock, but... That rock heard everything and then watched as they didn't uphold their end of the deal. As much as rocks can watch. It saw everything. And it saw how God did keep his end of the deal by destroying them in the end. Now it's interesting if we go back to the center of 24 Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served. And again, Joshua saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We have this concept of a household in the Bible that is a lot stronger than it is in America. Fathers, as heads of the household, were responsible for the worship of their families. Not worshiping their families, but how their families worshiped. They were the ones that got to pick whether or not that idol stayed on their coffee table. They were the ones that were responsible for training their sons and daughters on how to worship the Lord. As much as we can look at Israel as a whole and say, wow, that's terrible, you guys didn't obey the Lord even though you should have. We can also look at Joshua's generation and it's their fault, to some extent, that the next generation that rose up, their sons and their daughters, did not know the Lord. 
in Deuteronomy, um, we have this, this fun passage where, where God is uh, telling them how to remember the law. And he tells them to put it on their doorpost, to put it on their tassels, to put it on their hats, to put it as a frontlet in between their eyes so that constantly, everywhere they're going, whether they're coming into the house or out of the house, there's the law of God. They are remembering that they're talking about it. They're supposed to be talking with their children about it as they go out and as they come in because this is the only way that their children are ever going to keep the covenant is if their fathers are reminding them daily, this is the law of the Lord. This is the Lord your God who delivered our fathers out of Egypt. It would be looking at the memorial stones that we saw earlier in this book and saying, look how God was miraculous in how he fought for us when we obeyed him. Son, obey the Lord. And then they didn't. They didn't teach their children this. And they have a memorial stone of a different kind sitting under a tree watching them disobey Joshua's household, at the very least, was committing to serving the Lord. And Joshua, as a father, as the head of his household, was committing that his descendants were going to know the Lord, that they were going to serve the Lord. Now, there is a general principle here for sure. Fathers, what are you doing for your family's worship? Are there idols sitting on your coffee table? Hopefully not. Hopefully not like actual little statues. If there are, get rid of them. I don't care how good they look on your coffee table. Throw them out. Do not have idols in your home. In America, though, our idols are immaterial, although very material in another sense. We tend to worship wealth. We tend to worship health. We tend to worship self. And those all rhyme, and I didn't mean for that to happen. How are you monitoring, monitoring how your household worships? Are you watching them worship self and saying, oh, it's fine. They also have a little bit of Jesus. I bring them to church on Sunday. Are you watching them worship wealth and reasoning away, oh, they're just trying to be good stewards? There are plenty of idols that we worship, and I am actually going to be teaching on that in the Sunday seminar, so shameless plug for the Sunday, Sunday seminars. If you're not coming, we are going through stewardship, and I will be talking about idols in a few weeks, so you can hear more about it then. But for now, fathers, how are you monitoring your family's worship, your household's worship? And when we come back to the story, and we see where Israel ends up, It's a very sobering statement that Josh gives them. Joshua, not Josh. We're not that friendly. In verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God and he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your sins and your transgressions. The Old Testament prophets are some of the hardest books to read, at least in my opinion. Part of that is because of the fantastical images that we get to read about, like with the wheels and eyes and fire and crazy stuff with the cherubim. Um, but another part of that is because my Puritan sensibilities are more tight than God's. And when God speaks to Israel and he's speaking to them to condemn them, he uses words that I'm just not comfortable using. 
He talks to Israel, his chosen people, and calls her a whore. And uses very explicit language to talk about her harlotry. Because he is a jealous God. There's this idea that jealousy is a bad thing in our culture. And for most applications, that's probably right. Jealousy probably is a bad thing. But one place that it is not a bad thing is between a man and his wife. Men, if you are not jealous for your wives, there is a problem. And the same way that we are jealous for our wives and should be, God is jealous for his people. And when his people go and worship other gods, he compares it to adultery. And so men, you can imagine how angry you would be if your wife went and committed adultery. God is angrier than that at his people committing idolatry. He is a jealous God. Jealous is one of his names. This is how God identifies himself. And it's a good thing, but it is a fearful thing knowing that his people were adulterous, that they were not able to serve him. And that's heavy. It's really heavy, and especially when we reflect on that with the first part of Joshua 24 in mind, that the people that God had called for himself, he called out of idolatry. He called Abraham, who likely worked in an idol factory, brought him out so that he could worship the true God. When his people went down to Egypt and multiplied and likely committed idolatry, he called them out anyway. God had lots of people that could have been his people, and they weren't. No, he chose Jacob and Jacob's line. He called them out of their idolatry. And he, he talks a lot about their heritage here. And as I was, I was reading this and studying this, I started to think about my heritage. Um, every now and then I go and visit my grandfather's grave. And my grandfather was the only other Christian in my family, my grandfather and his wife. Um, my grandmother, I guess, is what I would call her. Uh, <laughs> every now and then I go and visit his grave. It's out in Peyton. And I sit there and I miss him. Uh, this time, I went and I thought about my heritage. And I come from a very long line of drunkards and thieves and murderers and adulterers. And like the only thing that I remember my grandfather saying in a positive light about where I come from is that if anybody ever accuses me of being a slave owner, I can say, no, we were too poor to ever own slaves. It's just a bad family history. There's nothing to be proud of until my grandfather, and he was a good man. But going further back, my heritage is idolaters. People that were not able to serve the Lord. People who did not serve the Lord. And yet, that man came, my grandfather, and my God called him out of idolatry. And I praise God for that because he was the only reason that I knew the gospel when I finally did come around um, and when God saved me. It, it was his fault and I praise God for that. Um, but the heritage of 
sinful idolaters was true of the Jews and it was true of me. And all along the way, we were not able to serve the Lord. But there was a man. There was a man who was able to serve the Lord in sincerity, who did not worship idols and who obeyed everything that God had ever commanded. And that man's name was Jesus. And I will remind you, friends, that Jesus and Joshua are the same name, just run through different strainers. Yeshua would probably be how we'd pronounce it in Hebrew. That man, Jesus, obeyed everything that God had commanded. His household serves the Lord because he serves the Lord. And I've got good news for you, friends. Now on this side of the new covenant, his household has an open door. And if you put your faith in him, you now can be part of his household and you too can serve the Lord. He, in his righteousness, can give you his obedience. You can be saved from the wrath to come and you can be saved from your sins. You can now come and obey the Lord in Jesus' household, which is a truly amazing thing. If you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, do so. If you have put your faith in Jesus, worship the Lord rightly. In coming to Jesus, you have committed to worshiping his God. In being part of his household, he governs how we worship. And so I want to ask you, friends, do you know how Jesus wants you to worship? Turn over with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans, what a book, what a book. It was probably meant to be read in one sitting. Oof. If you do read it in one sitting, what you'll find is that chapters one, two, and three establish the fallenness of all men, that we all are dreadful people, dead and rotten to the core, Jew and Gentile alike. You'll find in 4 and 5 that God had another plan, not to be saved through the law. That was going to be impossible because dead people can't come to life by themselves. But rather through faith, we can actually come and be accounted as, righteousness, or as righteous. It happened with Abraham, and it's been the plan the whole time through. That it, God sent a new Adam to take place, a new humanity in which we can be a part of through faith. You'll see in chapter 6 and 7 that as, whereas we were slaves to sin, we can be freed from sin and uh, slaves to righteousness that we now can actually obey. And it's a beautiful thing. And then chapter 8 is so glorious that we're going to take three weeks on it soon in a sermon series. It's, it's wonderful that God has brought us to newness of life and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is also giving life to your mortal bodies. Yes, your bodies right now, the ones that will die, he is giving life to those bodies so that you can overcome sin. And it is glorious. And that the entire earth is waiting and crying out, Lord, how long until the sons of God are revealed? How long until you come back and raise all of this death back to life, fully and finally at judgment day? How long? He also talks about how he is being faithful, that God is being faithful to his people Israel in 9 through 11, just not the way that we would have thought. And now, because of the glory of the gospel and how God is, in fact, keeping his promises, we get to chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Paul tells us how to worship in the new covenant. It is to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Spiritual and reasonable can be uh, the same word in Greek, which is fun, and I don't know which one is the better translation here because I want to do both. A spiritual worship by offering yourself. A reasonable act of worship because in light of everything that Jesus has done for you, it just makes sense that you would give him everything. And then he tells us what that means. Do not be conformed to this world, but by, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Renew your mind so that you can know what God wants. And in that way, knowing what God wants, you can worship him rightly. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. The talk of the identity in Christ is a common thing, but none of us really know what it means. If we're honest, yeah, you got to find your identity in Christ, not in those other things. Well, okay, thanks. Uh, what is that supposed to mean? Paul tells us right here, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Rather, you are a body part of Christ. That's how you ought to think of yourself. What does it mean to have your identity in Christ? It means that you are part of him, that you are a member of him, that as the church, we collectively together are the body of Christ, and you, Christian, are a part of that. That is how you ought to think of yourself. That is your identity as a body part of Christ. You see it right here in the text. I'm not making this stuff up. What does that mean? We all have gifts, verse 6, that differ according to grace given to us. So let's use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. If in service, then let us serve in our serving. The one who teaches, let him do it in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly love and outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of saint, the saints and seek to show hospitality. All of this is the same context. You see that? We have such a tendency to segment everything in our minds that we don't read this as though it's all one piece, but it is. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You are a body part of Christ. You have a different function than other people in the body of Christ. But you still got to do that function. I've had a lot of trouble with my hip recently, and it's really annoying to walk upstairs right now. Part of my body is not doing what it's supposed to because it thinks it's oh so important because it's injured. Oh, no. Frustrating. It's not how it's supposed to be. My leg is supposed to serve the rest of my body by getting to me to where I'm supposed to go so that the head can do its job and speak. <laughs> if you don't know your place in the body of Christ, I'm not trying to tell you that you need to figure out what toe you are. 
or what finger you are. That it's just a metaphor and it's supposed to be helpful, okay? You have a place serving Jesus by serving his saints. Did you see that in verse 5? So we, though many, are one body in Christ. We understand that we have an attachment to Jesus. As the body of Christ, we individually are attached to him. And we talked a lot about this last week. But then he continues, and individually are members of one another. As the body of Christ, you're not an individual body for Jesus. You are a part of his overall functionality. And church, we are the body. What are you doing to serve the body? If we have prophets, I don't know who you are. Start prophesying and do it with faith. If we have more teachers, start teaching. If we have people that are going to serve but aren't serving, start serving. Whatever gifts you might have, use them. And use them for the sake of building up the body of Christ. He commands you to. This is how you worship him. Do you see that? This is how you worship him. It's not segmented. Offer your body as a living sacrifice because you are a part of his body. Use the gifts that you have. And then all of us can understand how we can apply this next section, letting our love be genuine. It's easy to fake it. It's easy to not be sincere with our love for one another. A dear brother actually sent me a... Uh, little bit by Paul Washer, and I don't always like what Paul Washer has to say, but I think he's a good man. And this, this, uh, this segment was all about men who say that they love the church. I love the church by how I, how I do these things, how I teach mostly, is the context he was talking about. And he said, I don't know how, if you love the church. You seem to love your ministry. Oh, and that one hurt. That would hurt me deeply <laughs> because sometimes that has been true of me. We can love the gift and not love the giver, but the gift is for the sake of loving the giver. Sorry if that was hard to follow, but the reason that Jesus has given us gifts in the first place is so that we can build one another up and so worship him. It is not for self-actualization. It's not for us pleasing ourselves. Let your love be genuine. When you love the church, love them. Do it sincerely. Really do it. Hate what is evil. This one's hard. For some of us, it's a little bit easier, but for a lot of us, this is really hard because we don't think of hate as a good thing at all. But when it is directed towards things that are evil, it is a good thing. Hold fast to what is good. Seems pretty self-explanatory. There are lots of good things in our lives. We need to hold fast to those. This is a way that we can worship Jesus. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That is one of my favorite ones in the whole New Testament because it's silly to think about. It's the man holding a door and saying, after you, and the other man opening the door next to it and saying, no, after you, no, after you, after you, no, after you. Outdo one another in showing honor. How valuable do you consider the person next to you? person in front of you, etc. Do you consider God's people worth honoring? Honoring meaning to highly value. Do you highly value God's people? Do you value the person next to you more than they value you? Make it a contest. Have fun with it. Jesus' yoke is light. 
The commands that he has for us are light. We can have fun with them. Now, now do one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Be excited about the fact that you get to do this. This is an exciting thing that you get to serve the Lord in this way. Love it. Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. A lot of us need to work on what it means to rejoice, and a lot of us need to know what our hope is. Jesus one day will come back, and when he does, these bodies will be made new, and we will worship him rightly and without sin. That is your hope, and if that does not excite you, you need to think about it more. You need to dwell on it. You need to live in it because it is a command. You must rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. When we come up against something that is difficult or painful or hip-related, we have a tendency to not be very patient. <laughs> but it is a command. Wait on the Lord. And closely related, be constant in prayer. Waiting doesn't mean just sitting still. Jesus commanded the 12 disciples and those that were with them to wait until they were clothed with power from on high in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And they wait by studying the Bible and praying. Peter reading the Old Testament and trying to find Jesus in it. They were all dedicated to the prayers. This is something that you are commanded to do. Live in, uh, wait, nope, I skipped one. Here we go. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. I just want to thank uh, those of you, you know who you are, who have offered to help me and my wife during this time when I'm not working. It has been a huge help. Um, we are not in need. So those of you that want to offer more, offer it to somebody else. We don't need it. But seek to contribute to the needs of the saints. This is a command. It's something that you're supposed to do. If you have means, you should be using it for the body of Christ. Seek to show hospitality. This is one that actually gets the above all in uh, 1 Peter 4. Above all, continue showing hospitality to one another. Fathers, do you open your household? Would your children describe you as a hospitable person? If not, Praise God. The grace of God is more. And you can repent. Invite somebody over for dinner tonight. You're eating anyway. Just have somebody at the table with you. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight and repay no one for evil for evil but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And we could go on. Paul lays out for us how to worship God rightly. And fathers, if you have a plaque, if you have it on your wall somewhere, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Live up to it. Own it. Lead your family in doing these things. This is how we worship the Lord in the new covenant, is by loving his body. And there's lots of examples on how to do that just in one chapter, let alone most of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is structured in this way. Jesus is glorious. Obey him. 
the gospel is sufficient, here's how we live that out. Most of the New Testament is structured in that way. It doesn't take long for you to look and see. It's just on you to obey. Be very careful, Joshua said in 23, to obey all that the Lord has commanded. Yes, we have the grace of God's forgiveness of our sins. Now we should live in accordance with that. Because that man obeyed, and because that man took on the sins and all of our disobedience and all the punishment that we earned, we should love him and seek to love him through loving his church. We did that with Ephesians. We did it with Romans. And I, we could go on. But remember, your covenant with Jesus is based off of his obedience, the not if, but since. Now, what are you going to do with it? Friends, it is time to choose. If it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord by loving his church, then I guess go worship the idols that are worthless and you know it. But if this day you are going to choose to serve in the household of Jesus, of Yeshua, serve the Lord the way he has commanded. Love one another. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. I expect to see at least five of you at the doors for the next hour. Value God's people because he does. Love his bride because he does. Let's pray, friends. Jesus, we thank you for the book of Joshua and how instructive it has been for all of us. Uh, we thank you that the Old Testament is about you and that we can see that if we only look. Lord, I pray that uh, for those who have been a little wishy-washy in their faith and are not committing to obeying you, that you would convict their hearts. Lord, cause us to worship you rightly. And now that we have a good idea of how, give us the want, give us the drive. You can do it. We ask this for the good of your church. Amen.